So we are in probably the hardest passages to be in in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I want to begin with this question, and I'm going to briefly pray before I ask it. Uh, so Holy Spirit, I just I want to pray right now that, that when this question's asked, that you would just be a comforter, you'd be present, you'd be, you'd be here in this, and then you would just guide us into uh, the night of Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Uh, the question is this, what was the hardest thing you have ever had to do? Like, what was the hardest thing you have ever had to do? What was the hardest day, what was the hardest night of your life? that brought you a kind of angst, a kind of stress, a kind of sorrow you never thought imaginable. You, you never thought you could feel. What, what was the worst separation you have ever felt? As we pick things up this morning, as we come into this real living and active passage, we, we come into the darkest, the most sorrowful, the most painful, the most difficult night for Jesus. This is the night where Jesus is in Gethsemane. This is the hardest night of Jesus' life, of any human being that has ever existed and will ever exist. And I want us to feel the emotion of this night. I I want us to feel the heart of this night. I want us to feel the love for you in this night. And so we're going to read from uh, verses 30 to 46, but we're going to spend most of our time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's my heart for this message in particular. It's, it's right and good, and we will bring application in a sermon like this. But my heart is that we would kind of close out the apps in our minds and we would just put the phone down and we would just like marvel and admire and just be present with Jesus on his hardest night. So we're, we're just gonna spend a lot of time just looking at him. Not necessarily what, you know, what do I need to do about this or what does this mean for me? But I, just, I want us to worship and marvel and just sit with Jesus in, in his most painful night and then we'll see how it changes our most painful nights. So with that, let me read, and then I'll, I would like to pray again. But it'll be on the screen. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will, I will not deny you. And all the disciples, they said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let me pray. Of uh, Jesus, we, we know you're as present with us as you were with them on that night. And we are, we are wanting to be present with you. And we thank you that you're here and that we're here. And we just sang incredible songs about your work and life and death because you drank the cup for us. So we could be welcomed in, we could be accepted, we could be here and worship you. And I just, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm praying. I just wanna ask that you would minister, that you would help our souls love who we were made for, love more deeply, our savior, our only boast, our our greatest joy and and some of us are just, we're, we, are, we are just living normal, everyday summer lives. And, and we need this morning, we need, we need you. We need one another. So Holy Spirit, I just ask for the manifestation of the Spirit, that you would manifest gifts in this room, that you'd build up. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me and manifest through me the gifts you've given me so that this sermon would be by the Spirit's power. And Lord, help us to be okay with some of the weight. Some of us just don't like heaviness, but I just, I pray we'd be okay with it. We'd see how deep your love is. And so we love you. Just teach us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna look at three parts in this passage. Uh, three S's, Jesus' sorrow, Jesus' surrendered soul and Jesus sufficiency so his sorrow his surrendered soul and his sufficiency we did uh, beginning before Easter we actually preached in the middle of chapter 26 on Peter's denial so we're going to skip that part but also we're going to see it again next week so it'll come in there as well so we're going to spend most of our time in Gethsemane but I want you to notice on this topic of the sorrow of Jesus just how this night already began with some of the most painful uh, relational moments, okay? So first, he has a disciple who had been with him 
for three years. Like he had, you know, Judas who would have laughed with him, who would have had fires with him, who would have been one of the 12 to distribute the food of the 5,000. I mean, he, he saw Jesus talk to storms and, and they just obey. Like he was, he was there for it all, just side by side. And, and, and he just left to go betray him. Okay, that hurts. That hurts. That's a close friend. Additionally, Jesus, we just read, says to one of his best friends, uh, you're going to be disgusted by me tonight. You will deny me not once, not twice, three times. Right? He walks out of, of the Lord's Supper, which we talked about yesterday, and he, he, the first thing out of his mouth after a hymn is, you're all going to fall away. Like, let me just ask you, have you ever been betrayed? Like, have you ever been like the kind of betrayal that, man, just throws you into a fog? Where you just go, like, where your stomach can't even process it? You don't feel like eating, but you don't even know how you feel. It's like you're, you're even thinking, like, there's no way, like, not this person, not this, not this, not this group. Like, I let them in. I've given everything to them. This, this word fall away is, is a word that means to be disgusted or revulsed. Okay, is there anyone who's just revulsive to you? Have you ever doubted another person's commitment? It's a weird feeling. You don't know, you don't know how to be. And it's just, it's a very painful, heart-sinking moment. And I love Jesus says in verse 32, after he says that, he says, but after I'm raised up, note with me already, Jesus knows the plan. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I don't know, honestly, when I was reading this over and over and over, I don't know who he says that for. Like, I, I kind of think there's a part of me that thinks he's reminding his own heart in that moment of the relational pain of the victory. That is, when, when I've accomplished my promise keeping in the middle of all of your promise breaking, I'm going to lead you again. I think he's telling himself and them, this is hard, but this is where it's going. Um, I'm gonna lead you again. I think that's breathtaking for a few things. Number one, I think we need to hear this. Jesus doesn't say, because some of you this morning feel this way right now. Jesus doesn't say to them, I'm done with you. Like this is, you guys are the worst. This is not the first time. You failed me big time. He doesn't say that. Before they fail, in verse 32, before they mess up, he tells them, I'm gonna treat you on the basis of my goodness. When, I, when I'm raised, I'm gonna lead you again. It's absolutely breathtaking. God is fully in control this night. He's, he even says, you'll fall away. Now watch this, because the Bible said so. He's like, you're all gonna fall away because it was written in the scriptures, which Jesus' view of the Bible was not just that it's true. He believed that every part of it was coming true. So Jesus knows everything the Old Testament pointed to in regarding to him and salvation is going to happen. So he, he's not banking, hey, they might change their minds. He knows the Bible said they're falling away, so the Bible's coming true, you're falling away. In Zechariah, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Still a tough night, though. Tough night. But all this relational sorrow 
all of this heavy heartbreak is but a drop in the bucket of the kind of waterfall of sorrow that is about to ensue. So here's where we're going to just enter in Gethsemane together. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there, go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus goes to this garden, okay? This is a real place. This is a real night. This, this is a real day. This actually happened. So this night that we're about to read, we have 12, 11 eyewitness accounts. We have four gospel writers who write of this night. This is a biography of Jesus. This really happened. He tells the 10, sit here, takes Peter, James, and John, and something I want us to see in Jesus' soul in this moment just unravels. Like the text says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The word sorrowful is, is a word for the sad. It's the, it's, the, it's the saddest possible word in Greek. You couldn't get a sadder word. He is so broken. There's, he's, he's a shattered piece of china. He's He's a mess. He's, he's in distress. This is intense agony. The word trouble means basically hopeless. B.B. Warfield says the word troubled is the word for horror. He's experiencing a devastating sense of horror, a mental and spiritual anguish. And we need to note what Jesus does next. And I wish we did this more as a church. He doesn't hide. He doesn't put on a mask. God, who we believe, and the Bible teaches, he added to himself humanity fully, became fully man, as fully a model for how we're to live our lives. As he's unraveling emotionally in the most stressful, painful time he's ever been in, Notice what he does. He tells someone. Like he tells them. He shares it. I've seen too many marriages and too many people unravel because they didn't say anything. They didn't ask for help. You need to hear this, and this is for at least someone here. Sometimes people don't know honestly how you're doing. Your spouse may not know how you're actually feeling. I'm so shocked by how many times I listen to a soul unravel and I ask them the question, have you told this person that? And the answer is no. Jesus, in the hardest night, he says to them, guys, I've never asked you to do anything for me. I've never, you know, I've never asked you to be there for me. I don't, I, and I just, I, want, I don't wanna go this alone. I need you in my greatest moment of testing and sorrow to pray. I need you to stay awake. There's no language for this kind of emotion. He is, he is crushed. He can even sense his internal organs not working right. He can sense his lungs. He can sense his heart rate. His breath is responding. When he says, 
um, my soul is very sorrowful, even to, the, even to death. He's, he's speaking physically. He can sense there's so much horror happening that he could, he could die there. Studies have shown, I, I came across only one of them, um, in, at, at the St. George University of London, that the sadness, extreme bereavement has caused and has great increase of cause uh, of death, of actual heartache and stroke. They call it a heartbreak or a broken heart for a reason. Quote, we often use the term a broken heart to signify the pain of losing a loved one, and our study shows that bereavement can have a direct effect on the health of the heart. So by the way, if, if, if you're new to learning about Christianity, or maybe you're just like, I don't really believe, um, I'm really glad you're here. This just, I think it's, I admire that a lot, by the way. And I want you to just keep coming and asking questions. I do want to just point out, like, you wouldn't, you would not make this up. Like, if you were to start a religion and kind of get off, get your religion off the ground in the first century, you wouldn't have your founder be so uh, seemingly wimpy or so distressed or so in agony. You wouldn't. Many of, many of the martyrs, even after Jesus, died courageously. So what's coming down on him? Why the magnitude of his agony? What is this waterfall? Okay, just for a moment, though, turn. I want you to think about the disciples. Like, they're, they're kind of falling asleep, but, but just think about this. They, they've never seen him like this. They don't... I mean, nothing fazed Jesus. Like, again, they saw him put a storm in time out. That's, that's a big deal. They're probably like, I mean, they've just seen him like against the most scariest people in front of them. Like the Pharisees, nothing fazes Jesus and he comes shaking, he comes unraveled, he comes sweating. Luke says in his gospel, he is sweating so profusely in such horror and spiritually and emotionally that, that it looks like, and it, and it was, drops of blood were coming from his forehead. Imagine that for them. So what's happening? We get the answer in the prayer that Jesus prays in verse 39 and verse 42. It'll be on the screen. And in going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, again, for the second time, notice the prayer is different. And we'll talk about that in a second. He went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So let this cup pass, if this cannot pass, lest I drink. So the cup and the drinking of this cup is the cause of the hardest night in Jesus's life. So what is the drinking? The cup was always the plan. The cup in the Old Testament 
always referred to the cup of judicial wrath on human evil. That he will pour out his cup. The cup is the cup of judgment. The cup is the cup in the word past that Jesus just explained. This is the cup of the new covenant, the blood broken. This is Jesus being that lamb that will go across the door of your life. This will be the payment for, the punishment for, the penalty for our sin and the righteous, good, righteous justice of God against our sin. Now, we need to talk about this a little longer because the extent and the largeness of this cup is unimaginable for us. We're talking about an infinite, glorious, holy, eternal being where not all our sin is just against another person. All our sin is ultimately against God. This cup and drinking of this cup was Jesus bearing the penalty for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, He who knew no sin became sin. So if all sin is relational and sin imparts into others anguish and shame and pain. So you need to understand when we sin, we not only sin against God, we sin in a, in a way, all sin bites. It'll bite you. It'll bring guilt into your life. When you're selfish with your, with your words, if you're angry, if you're lusting, if you're, there's so much horrific ways we can describe this thing. But the moment you want to be your own God and the moment you want to be in control and the moment you, you decide, I'm, I'm going to do what's best for me first, you not only bring a kind of death into your own soul because that's not how you're meant to live, you not only have pushed out God in that moment, which is the essence of sin, living as if he doesn't matter, you're also, when you sin against someone else, you bring a kind of death and bite into them. So here's what you need to hear. He's bearing sin. He's bearing the, the horrific treason of just worshiping God's stuff over God. He's, and then in that acts, he's, he's bearing, like he's experiencing every sexual sin committed against every person who's been molested, who's been raped, who's been exposed, who's been hurt. He's, he's, he's bearing that effect. He is, he is bearing the evil, the abuse. He is bearing the injustice. He is he is taking on all the wounds so that by his wounds we can be healed. There's nothing like this cup. He's becoming sin first, and then he's going to feel the hatred because of the love of God and the vengeance against all that sin. So God treated Jesus on the cross as if he did it all. Does that make sense? You need to understand that is really important. God treated Jesus as if he did it all. And listen, this is not only the sin that, that we have committed and then those present in his day, but this is all the sins of those in the Old Testament who by 
he gave grace and means through the death of the lamb. That lamb was just gonna be a substitute for a year, but God will take the justice for that year for Israel in you know 2000 BC and he will store it up and he will pour that judgment on them in Christ. Just as they look forward to Christ, we look back to Christ. Christ is, is drinking a massive cup Romans 3, if you want to learn more about that, speaks of how that works. But I want you to think about this night a little longer. He, Jesus isn't coming into any new information in this moment. Uh, he, I mean, he knew he was going to suffer for sin. He's not like, you know, taking something from the Father that he didn't see coming. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He told his disciples over and over, like, I am going uh, to, to be betrayed. I'm gonna, he, he just broke the wine. And, he, and what did he say? He said, this is my blood poured out for what? Do you remember? The forgiveness of sins. So what's going on? because he's not on the cross yet. I'll tell you what I think, and I could be wrong. I think perhaps the cloud of the wrath of the separation was beginning to roll in. And I think in that moment, Jesus was beginning to experience a relational brokenness, a turning away that he's never had in his life. I think he was experiencing the wrath of God in the garden. And here's why I say that. As I've studied sin and learned more and more about it, you go to places like Romans 1, and here's what we learned. In Romans 1, there's the passive wrath of God, that when we sin, the consequence for our sin is God gives us over to what we want. We say in our sin, I don't want you. I want to live how I want to live apart from your law and your goodness. And what God does as an act of judgment is he says, okay, you can have it. Let me, let me show you this. For the wrath, it'll be on the screen, of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. They made idols. So what does he do? Here's the consequence. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. God gave them up. Second Thessalonians 1, speaking of the hell, we read this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And notice this next sentence, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So if you were built for the presence of God, there's nothing worse if we were made for him, without him, we would become less human. Without him, we'd become less happy. Without him in the center of our lives, we'd become less whole. The punishment is 
the Bible seems to just say its worst punishment and ultimate destruction is the human heart being cut off from the presence of God. So here's what I think. On that night, like a bad storm rolling in, Jesus, just so you, if we, we cannot comprehend an eternal relationship that never had a beginning, so it's, it's hard for me to even go there, but if we can comprehend Jesus living every moment with the Father. Like he constantly would say, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus got all of his grace, all of his power, all of his love from his relationship from the Father. So in this moment, after leaving the 10 to get more of the Father, he unravels. Why? Because when he turned his soul toward the Father for the first time, he found an abyss. He found separation. He found the cloud. And that's never happened. Bill Lane, in his commentary on Mark, he puts it this way. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety, then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened up before him. He turned expecting heaven and the Father, and there was silence. The Father was present, but not in the same way. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. So if you're like, that's, you know, that's one Bill Lane. He says, essentially, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This is how deep his love for us is. Like this makes the verse, for God so loved the world, really powerful. Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Keller commentating on this passage says, look at what it costs, look at what he did, look at what he was taking. There are some, you know, people who love Jesus who want to lean more into a, a different view of atonement, which is hard to find. But they don't love the idea of this wrath. But I, I like what we need to see in this moment. You get rid of wrath and hell. He's not taking anything close to this. And therefore, what you've done is you've just turned his incredible act of love into just something very trivial, very small. 
I remember one of my friends in high school when I was sharing the gospel with him. I think I've said this before, but he said to me, hey, what's the difference between Jesus dying for me and my grandpa dying for me in the war? We have an answer. He says, if you get rid of the idea of wrath and hell, he says, I didn't have a more loving God, I had a less loving God, a God who loved me without any cost to him at all. So that's the sorrow of Jesus. Look with me in this sorrow at his surrendered soul. In verse 39, and going a little farther again, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then here it is, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So if he sees, if there's any other way, like if there's any, this is just, it's too intense. The, the flames are too hard. This turning away is too agonizing. If there's another way to do the, the salvation and let this judgment pass, I don't wanna drink this poison. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He doesn't, we need to understand, he doesn't have a separate will. It's not, he's, the word in the Greek doesn't mean like uh, purpose. He doesn't, he, Jesus doesn't have his purpose and then the father's purpose. And they're like, which one should I do, yours or mine? He, the, the word for will is the word for desire. Like, I don't want this, but I want what you want. He knows his greatest desire is the will of the cross. And here's why we can say that. In Hebrews 12, we read this. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There's something that's about to happen in our passage that I think, and I could be wrong. So again, I'm just I'm trying to preach as close as I can to this text. But I think something happens in prayer one and prayer two that's totally different. And I think Hebrews 12 happened in the middle tell you in a second, but, but this is there. Jesus had a joy in enduring the cross. He's surrendered. He knows where it's going. So before he returns once again to the father a second time, there's something very powerful that Luke tells us in his gospel and Hebrews tells us in his letter that help us understand a little bit more that happened on this night. So let me show you this really quick. Luke twenty two forty three, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So you have prayer one, not my will, but yours. I want what you want, but please, if there's any other way, an angel strengthenings him, strengthens him. The wrath is rolling in. And here's what we read in Hebrews five. We heard that Jesus' prayer was heard Look at this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He was heard, it says, so follow me here. God in, in this abyss, in this moment of pulling away, sends him an angel. We don't know what the angel said, but it's more than likely something along the lines of the answer is no. And you know you're gonna drink this cup. 
because his language changes. His language is no longer, if there's any other way, it's, I need your help through it. He says, my father, if this cannot pass, which means he has an answer. He knows this cannot pass. He knew it, but now he knows it. Something switches there for him. Because he's not sweating blood anymore in the next few chapters, and when he goes and gets whipped, I mean, he's bleeding. Here, Jesus is willing to do something extremely hard that his father had called him to, and he knew it. And I, I just want to ask us, and it, as an aside, but it's really important, so look right at me. What hard thing is God asking you to surrender to him? that you need to say your will be done. What hard thing is God asking you to surrender to him that you need to say, not my will, but I want what you want for this? Jesus went first. Third, lastly, Jesus' efficiency. I just want to point out where it wasn't, okay? It wasn't in his disciples. And I, I think we need to see ourselves in the disciples on this night. There's so much in here that I could relate to. Like, my flesh is, my spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak. And there's, there's so much in here. But, I mean, the second part of verse 40, so you could not watch with me one hour, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he says, walk and pray, meaning like commune with God. By the way, if, when we're going through temptation, that's how you endure. You commune with God. You, you bring him in. You, you bring him into this, this communing here. The temptation, I believe in this passage, is not to, you know, like we add all our own sins, but for this night, it was to abandon him, to doubt him. Let me ask you, how many of you, even right now with what you're going through, you're tempted to doubt him? You've been tempted to deny him. You've been tempted to abandon him. Maybe at work. Maybe amongst your, your friends and your, even your own family when it comes to bringing up the person of Jesus or when asked a question, you're tempted to doubt him. And they, they did. I need to ask you this. Is there something going on in your life right now by the way of temptation? Or you know of someone else and you're not doing anything about it? Like, like Jesus calls him to watch and pray. Maybe there's someone this week that God will show you, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day in your life where you will know they're facing a kind of darkness, they're facing a kind of really painful thing, a, a kind of loss, and they need you to stay awake. Maybe silently to stay with them, to watch and pray alongside them. It's been such a personal gift for me. I, I, whenever I feel like uh, Satan is storming my soul, I'll be able to text the elders, and I know they're staying awake with me in prayer, that's such a gift. So what's his strength and sufficiency? Well, 
we saw it in the angel, but to be honest with you, this is gonna sound like an easy answer, the Bible. Like his sufficiency in this night is the Bible. Jesus has been fulfilling scripture every day of his life, every week of the last three years of his ministry. And so he knows his sufficiency is God will do what God says. He will rise. His sufficiency is in the word of God, that what God says will happen in his death and resurrection, that he will be our champion, that victory will happen, that this is all going to take place. Because do you remember what he cries on the cross? After he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after he cries, like, forgive them. What does he cry? We're gonna sing it actually in the last song. It is finished. It's finished. His sufficiency was in the Father. That they had worked out this plan before the foundation of the world. Jesus suffered that night so we could be saved. He surrendered his life to redeem ours. And sure, loving God does not always mean that we want to face what God calls us to face. Loving God does not always mean that we want to face what God calls us to face. It does mean that we choose to face it, trusting him. I don't know what's been going on in your soul this week or even this morning and even in this message, but I do know because he went through Gethsemane when it comes to our darkest nights where it feels like it's just an abyss. He knows what it's like. And he's there. When it comes to our endurance, we stand already as those who've endured because Jesus endured. He was faithful even when we're faithless. He is our righteousness. He is our savior. And we just sang about it. And he's so wonderful and he's so loving and he's here. Nothing can separate you from that kind of love. Nothing 